Welcome to Esoteric America, a podcast where we tour the strange, mystical, and esoteric pathways hidden beneath the surface of America. Join Mark, Tara, Roman, Chad, and a new local researcher each episode as we dive into our country's diverse regions, states, counties, cities, towns, neighborhoods, parks, etc., leaving no stone unturned as we unravel the cult knots that tie history, culture, religion, all in with fringe elements that you may not have realized were at play in your own backyard. Seattle, Washington, with Cirrus Fox. Esoteric America, a mystical, strange, and occult tour of our wild and weird North America. Joining us today on the show is a gentleman who goes by the name Cirrus Fox. I hope I pronounced that correctly. He is a man of many talents. He works with crystals. He works with stones and many different other natural items and today he's gonna be giving us a audio and visual tour of his location i think or i assume or maybe he lives near it but it's seattle washington and we're joined today by our usual co-hosts me myself mystic mark joined by my lovely girlfriend tara hey <laughs> our righteous co-host Roman. Hey everybody, super and, stoked for today. And a big shout out to Chad Stemke, who is not feeling well, but normally joins us here on the show. But without further ado, let's explore Seattle, Washington. Uh, Max, how are you today, brother? Doing excellent. Thanks for having me. This is a pretty cool show and my first podcast experience. Uh, it's exciting. Right on. Yeah, we hope that this show can be many people's first podcast because all it really takes to qualify is, you know, being aware of where you live and, and doing a little digging. And from what I've gathered before we started recording here, you've gathered quite a lot. Am I correct? 
Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> right on. So Roman hits you with this idea, and I imagine you were either already researching this kind of stuff or took it upon yourself to start. How did that happen? Have you been interested in your local area in this way uh, prior yeah, to the request? Yeah, definitely. Um, like I had kind of only done little surface scratching of the area, just kind of, I mean, I guess way back when it started with, you know, shows like, you know, back when I was probably still technically asleep or whatever, shows like ancient aliens that kind of been like, you know, there's some stuff in history that doesn't make sense to me, like logically, and either it's how structures were built or how fast they said things moved or whatever. But like, I didn't want to just believe this show on the History Channel that, you know, I guess for good reason, as you know, many, you know, people kind of laugh at it, I think, but um, that made me want to kind of research, like find ancient texts that I could. So I go to like thrift stores and just trying to find the oldest books and just kind of books on mythology and going through that and trying to tie in basically my own research and try to figure things out myself rather than just you know, believe what I had heard. And part of that was well, from looking into my local area, which I'm actually north of Seattle. I was living in uh, Bellingham, Washington. I went to Western Washington University um, and just the last year moved uh, out north um, to an area called Birch Bay. Just kind of wanted to get out of the city with everything going on and uh, just feel more comfortable with me. I'm more of a country boy, I guess, that kind of like to get out in nature and not like the city life, especially as I've kind of gotten older and disconnected from the bar scene and stuff like that. Um, but so I kind of found more research on Seattle rather than just strictly the Bellingham area, although there's definitely some in, in that area as well. Um, but it, it was kind of started just going through some photo online photo archives through the University of Washington. They have a lot of kind of old 1800s photos of just kind of everything to do with kind of Washington and even some with like Alaska and kind of the surrounding area. Hmm. Um, so just kind of was just, you know, basically just looking through photographs and, you know, looking for things that stood out to me or interest me or kind of guided me into different areas of research, I guess. Wow. There. I, I, I want to say, uh, just let everybody know there's a big old synchro between us because we were living in Bellingham, Washington, um, during an overlap of years, like, as we were talking about Washington, I was, I'm born in Washington. I'm a Washingtonian and uh, I was born in Port Angeles, which if people don't know the geography of Washington state, it's incredible. Um, it, it is probably one of the more diverse states in the country. Um, I mean, at least comparatively to its size besides, you know, California and maybe Florida, I guess, but there's a, the, one of the biggest temperate rainforests in the world, um, on the peninsular coast of Washington. And it's some of the densest, like mycology, some of the densest forests, some of the oldest growth forests in the world. And, um, yeah, tectonically speaking, the Strait of Juan de Fuca sits between the North American plate and the Pacific Ocean plate. And it's a tiny little sliver of a tectonic plate that is sunken below, um, creating the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And it's along the Ring of Fire, which, um, yeah, so there's a lot of activity happening there. And I, 
And personally, I'm excited uh, to speculate quite a lot about Seattle. Um, I mean, it's just rich in its its history, especially when uh, you look at like corporate takeover that's happened there um, and things like that. And I do mean corporate like our Sir Bill Gates, pretty sure bought the whole like downtown or whatever. But anyways, Washingtonians unite. Um, glad you're still hanging in there, brother, because it is beautiful. If you can get past the politics of that state. I've thought about winning so much in the last couple of years, mostly because I didn't really find a local community where I was living in the city. And then once I moved out and then partly from, uh, listening to a podcast that I came in contact with their kind of big homesteaders and we were, I did took some fermentation classes from her, um, like online zoo ones. And then I've done some in-person ones. And then now I've met up with them. I've helped them uh, like butcher chickens and I get eggs from them. And just sort of through this, I've found, I've found a more of a local community, which I was definitely lacking and thought that I had to move away. And so I am just trying to ignore what's going on in the bigger picture and realize that it is an amazing place. Geographically, the nature, I'm like nestled in between mountains and coasts, like within you know, I'm right now living at the coast of Washington, although I'm almost at the Canada border, but I can just drive, you know, 30 minutes to an hour, depending on getting like into deep Cascade mountain ranges and all the bounty that that holds. So it's a very cool area. And then it just has fertile farmland in between. So I'm just surrounded by some of the best berry farms in the region, like Whatcom County, oh. where I'm located. Like the, it's like the leading producers of like raspberries, or like blueberries oh. are up there. And, oh. uh, cherries are pretty good from here. Not as good as probably Eastern Washington, but like definitely good uh, berry picking around here and, and also good dairy farms. So it's just kind of, I feel like being close to the people that produce food is a definite positive, especially as we move forward into the unknown, I suppose. But um, yeah, thanks for reading that uh, nice little geological, geographical survey for us. But where are we going to start? I mean, (laughs) sounds like you got a lot of images collected, but uh, where do you want to start with this, Max? All right. This is just a little teaser to the fire, which comes up later. But I just kind of thought this picture was funny. It's a little bit after the fire. And then, of course, the your credit is good sign did not burn. Just so letting everyone know that you can still <laughs> still go into debt to fund what you need. But I titled this presentation Seattle Rain and Fire because it does rain quite a bit out here. Right. And just as I was kind of looking into maps, I came across this map. I don't totally know why I included it. And I guess it could just be a shittily drawn map from the 1700s, but I thought it was interesting that they have California as an island here and just some different Gulf of Mexico, Cubal, and just different spelling. And then even the English plantations are all up here in the north, uh, the north of the eastern coast. And, and then the part I like the most is the part of the northern unknown continent up there in the north. Do you have a year that this map was oh, made? 1701. That okay. was. I was going to say, this reminds me of... The Edward a... Wells was the cartographer of that. Mm. I didn't do a full deep dive onto him because I just sort of was going through maps of North America from the archives, uh, online archives, and just I just love old maps. And, you know, I suppose it can just be a poorly drawn one. I'm, you know, I'm... No, I mean, it's not poorly uh, drawn. It's as best as they uh, allegedly knew. I imagine it's pretty hard going from a boat and looking with your, you know, telescopic monocular, whatever it is they probably well, use. You, you got to think too, because this right here reminds me a lot of like what a conquistadorian style 
or like a old Spanish map would look like because they were heavily focused on the islands of Cuba. Hispaniola. Definitely, that's where they probably. Yeah, you know, it says New Spain landfall. right there, where Mexico, New right, Spain, Mexico or New oh. Spain. Uh, yeah, it's also yeah, definitely. Also says it was published by William Duke of Gloucester, so that's probably the guy who owned the company that right paid for this map to be made. But yeah, definitely interesting. Do you think that this area up here in the corner, north corner of the California island, uh, New Albion looks like it's called? Have you looked yeah. into that? Are there any places named New Alban in that area? That I'm not sure. I, I'm not that familiar with California. Well, it could be Washington, it don't you think? By, uh, Sir Francis Drake, Anno 1577. Hmm. Um, but like, yeah, possibly. Like, or maybe it could be, I guess, let's see. Yeah, I guess that could be kind of like this. It almost could be Vancouver Island or something like that. Right. That's what I was thinking. But yeah, it's, uh, uh, I think it says, New Albion, also known as Nova Albion, was the name of the continental area north of Mexico claimed by Sir Francis Drake uh, when he sailed on the North American West Coast in 1579. So yeah, we don't know how far he made it north, but yeah, it's interesting right. that he named it that. Because like, I was wondering if there was like a river or something maybe that they could, because like, I mean, they made it very specifically like, you know, totally detached from the rest of it. I just wondered if maybe water levels have changed potentially in you know the 300 years or so that has but who, who knows yeah i guess the mainstream record would tell us that the first uh, europeans to make it to washington were probably like lewis and clark or uh the people who helped explore right. canada yep. right yeah definitely and then found another one that's kind of kind of similar where it had the California Isle de California hmm. and uh, just kind of thought that was sort of interesting. And I, I did look up this word um, septentrio where, cause I was wondering why they heard septentrional and that just means the North, I guess. So, yeah. But, and yeah, that, but, I think septentrio is Latin uh, for right. North. But this is also, uh, I think, a 1717 map. Okay. Uh, but then this one, a little more fast forward in time, is the 1883 map of Washington Territory. So this is more modern of what we're sort of looking at. and still has pretty close breakdown of counties and to modern day. They've probably changed, or they've definitely changed a little bit, especially out here in the east uh, or northeastern corner of Wacom, or Washington. And um, so Seattle's here kind of in the middle of the Puget Sound, which, I mean, if you look at Washington, sort of like a, I don't know, not quite a glove like Michigan, but kind of maybe like a fist with the thumb out with the Olympic Peninsula being the thumb, then about halfway down the gap is Seattle, Washington. And uh, one thing that kind of amazed me is that like in 1883, which the, Seattle was only founded in uh, 18, early 1850s, and that it's pretty well drawn out and like defined. And you'd have to think that a lot of this area is just rugged, you know, uncharted land to these, you know, settlers that, you know, the European Americans that were coming across for the first time, even though there's plenty of, you know, native tribes that have been in the region for thousands of years. But, you know, I don't know if they used uh, maps and things like that. It was more... Yeah, I, I don't know about their paper making. I didn't look into that, but uh, 
Are you uh, able to zoom in at all in the uh, in the top in the top of the peninsular corner? Uh, let's hope that's not zoom. I figure there is some way. All good if not. All good if not. I was just curious uh, about Port Angeles, this town I was born on this old map. I'm just. Uh, here we go. Jefferson County. There's. Yeah. Mason. There you go. Uh, New Dungeness, Port Townsend, Cooperville, Ports. Well, looks like they'll got the engineers on there. Yeah, Port Townsend and Port Discovery are still around. Yeah. That, yeah. As I, I highly advise take. Oh, Port Angeles. I do see it right there. Nice. Is that a military city? Port Angeles? Uh, I mean, it's pretty, uh, actually this part of Washington, um, definitely, you know, because it's like state forest, they definitely have some, like some bunkers going on. Yeah. I remember exploring some bunkers in that area. My dad or my, uh, uncle used to live out in Port Angeles, Port Townsend. He moved to Forks and kind of that whole area. But I remember as a kid kind of going exploring some bunkers and thought that was pretty cool. Like, I think they were like World War II bunkers or something. Yeah, I remember that. I lived in Olympia for a year and I went and bought shoes in Port Angeles. So I remember seeing the bunkers. Mm -hmm. That's that's my only memory of it. But but it's also got a lot of uh, indigenous culture still pretty tried and true there. Um, Definitely. Which is really cool. Like it's pretty, uh, pretty prominent. You got a lot of the fish, uh, the fishing culture there, which is phenomenal. And the art, the art that came from the... uh, the natives there is really cool. Like I really dig that art. Definitely. Like we'll get into a little bit of that. Like I, you know, could have focused probably an entire, <laughs> entire slideshow on that. But oh, for uh, sure. uh, yeah. Well, thank you for that, sir. Yeah, for sure. And then now getting into the indigenous people of Puget Sound, which they're kind of largely called, uh, or we call them now, uh, Salish, which is an anglicization of um, the actual word. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it. <laughs> I'll, I'll probably just butcher it. But it's sort of a combination of um, similar languages of all, you know, I think there was I saw a list of like 66 different tribes, and there's probably more if they're split into different uh subdivisions and subgroups as they kind of move around and split off and have beef or make peace with each other whatever um but the essentially um that's kind of what we call the then there's sort of the coastal salish which is along the coast of the puget sound and then they even have inner salish which is the first where we get that word um which is kind of way further to the east kind of past in Western Montana, where the Flathead Nation, um, which was the the first people that kind of they speak this all similar um, dialect, and they were since they're to the east, where the first ones encountered, they were encountered uh, by like Lewis and Clark, this um, the first um, a trapper Andrew Garcia, an explorer David Thompson, and then Lewis and Clark, and then the story that I found about them. Was September fourth, eighteen oh five. They came and asked for horses, but they had to eat them due to starvation. <laughs> so that was their experience with the um, uh, Flathead Nation. And uh, this picture on the right here, 
I kind of thought was interesting. This is just one that I pulled from Wikipedia. So take that for what you will of <laughs> validity. But um, this it, is a delegation that's in Washington, D.C., actually. But kind of like looking at it and obviously they're you know, all just kind of like posing there. But I kind of was thinking like if this is Washington, D.C., it, it almost feels like a fake background you know, where they all, it almost remind me of those like Wild West where you go and you put on the costume and then take your picture as like Abraham Lincoln or whatever. And like, maybe that's just me. And I was looking at too many pictures and starting to think that some of them looked kind of staged, like, like definitely not all of them, but. This looks uh, incredibly staged. I mean, I, I'm just going to say that the background does. Right. Kind of like it's like drop. a painted on TV. Yeah. And they just got these people to kind of stand there. And maybe they just set this up for them in Washington, D.C. to make it look more authentic. And that obviously these people could still be 100 percent, you know, natives and all that kind of stuff. And this is just what they did for publicity or what have you. Um, But it, it just kind of that picture just kind of stood out to me. And I came across some other ones later on that were. Uh, definitely uh, to me, uh, and one of them even admits that it was kind of a fake picture we'll get into. Um, so, so like even back then with black and white photos, there was some, you know, quote unquote Photoshop going on or the potential for that to go on. And so I just like to kind of keep that in mind. Um, part of the, uh, <laughs> the whole rise of stage play like stages and plays was like the veil of illusion the rise of like spiritualist movement which was like a not- right the world is a stage <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah the globe theater right and this is like the one of the famous theaters but uh how they would do a lot of these like fake pictures in the early 1800s is hilarious i mean <laughs> you're so right there's there's massive amounts of early photoshop that right uh, It'll just blow your mind because you're like, like, we think they're just pushing narratives now, but like whatever the narrative was at the time, they would do whatever they felt was necessary. And that was editing books or newspapers or photographs, I feel like. Um, But uh, so here's kind of more of a a Western map and the kind of split of the larger on the left map. There's more of we're getting to California and Oregon and some of the areas we were just looking at. Um, and then here on the right, a little bit more of the Puget Sound, which I mostly focused on. So these are the shoot speed, shoot seed speaking nations. And that was kind of directly along um, the Puget Sound coast. And uh, the, these are 1880s uh, maps and for the distribution of these languages. And there was definitely a lot of moving around of the tribes and stuff like that. So like the boundaries weren't always super um as intense as they are now where, you know, they really stake things out. Um, but, and this is kind of a breakdown of some of the different coast Salish nations and where exactly, uh, I guess this is where I saw the 66 um, deviations and I'm sure there's more. And mostly I kind of focused on the Duwamish, which is number 51. If you can find that down in Seattle down here. And that is actually where, um, Seattle gets its name from Chief Seattle or it might be pronounced Seattle or something similar. I'll probably just call him Chief Seattle because I um, would probably butcher it either way. But from their stories that they have been in the area for up to as much as 10,000 years. So they kind of have a long, long history in the region. Um, 
Yeah, just another map of this kind of this the Duwamish region here with the Duwamish River is this one flowing into uh, into Elliott Bay here, and which is where they decided to found Seattle. And this is a picture of the chief where Seattle gets his name um, on the left there. And then the one on the right, does anything look funny to you about that one? Automatic. When you pop it up. I'm just looking for Photoshop photos now. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, this one actually in the uh, UW archives that it said in the little description that it was a superimposed head on this body or what it looks like. And I mean, it definitely looks out of place. And so that was kind of like, okay, so they were definitely... You know, whoever, for whatever reason, I can only speculate, but, you know, there was editing going on even back then. Now, if maybe just someone wanted to seem famous, I've got a picture of the chief. That's definitely possible just to, you know, sell some photographs or get your name out there. I could totally see that. But um, that and as, as a boy, uh, the chief saw British Captain George Vancouver's ships passed through the Puget Sound in 1792. And in the late 1700s to early 1800s, he witnessed epidemics of new diseases introduced by tra traders. Experts estimate that 12,000 Puget Sound Salish, which was about 30% of the population, died from smallpox, measles, and influenza. Now, kind of reading that, especially with what's going on the last couple of years, I'm sort of I don't know what happened, <laughs> but something definitely happened and was killing the natives at this point. I mean, even more so than, you know, wars and things like that for over territory or hunting rights. But he, he grew up speaking Duwamish and Suquamish as his mother was Duwamish and his father was the chief of the Suquamish tribe. And he inherited a position of chief of the Duwamish from his maternal uncle, so his mom's side. And then he built kind of a strong alliance um, between the two uh, nations that was kind of right there in that Duwamish River area. And he was actually pretty friendly to uh, European Americans as they were coming over here and settling. And he traded salmon, venison, furs, potatoes with the new arrivals. And worked, they worked as guides and they ended up working in uh, the lumber mills that uh, started to pop up in the area. Like that was probably the main. Um, export of Seattle to jumpstart things with the uh, Henry Yesler's steam mill that he eventually builds. Uh, one interesting thing that I kind of came across was that since they didn't initially have cows in the area for milk for the children, for the settlers, they showed them how to substitute clam juice for that. Oh, nice. <laughs> so so put a little uh, clam juice in your Cheerios next time and see how that goes. <laughs> Sweet. But and then kind of yeah, walking into the Duwamish River, this, I, I, you know, I guess it's just kind of a composite unless they had satellites or balloon photography in the 1800s of what the river used to look like. As you can see, just kind of like any old river seems to be have lots of bends and twists and turns. And then what they changed it to is just kind of almost straight, a couple kinks in it. Um, looks like the southern end is still mostly the same and they originally they say that the glaciers and repeated transformation by catastrophic volcanic mud flows earthquakes and floods was what kind of carved out that uh river valley but the um 
Arguably the greatest transformation the river experienced in recent history was wrought by human engineering. In the early 20th century, a series of major engineering projects diverted the commingled flows of three rivers out of the valley, lowered Lake Washington nine feet, shortened the river by four miles, dredged the river into a navigable waterway, filled in the old meanders and built Harbor Island, the largest man-made island in the world at the time, by washing hillsides into the tide flats. This was largely undertaken for flood control efforts, navigation, and commercial interests because where they decided to set up and found Seattle was uh, right in some uh, floodplains, basically, like some tidal floodplains. And so they were battling floods a lot into early founding and um, had all kinds of issues. And that that's part of how they kind of get into it. We'll get into it later, but the different regrading um, aspects of, uh, of Seattle where they decided to just take down all the hills and um, push them into the bay, essentially, even burying old buildings. And they have a Seattle underground, which I didn't even have a chance to get into that, but that's, you know, a whole nother topic. But uh, I was looking into different uh, creation stories that the indigenous people had. And let's see, I think I won't read all of these because I put a few of them in here, but the main one that I wanted to read was this great flood one. And I'll just read it because I just did a little copy, copy pasta because I didn't want to mess it up. But long before missionaries ever arrived in the new world, the natives had ancient legends of a great flood. And this is the one that Cowichan tell, which they're actually um, on Vancouver Island. So not, but I, I found ones uh, like kind of earlier than Nisqually, which were down South. And a lot of the Puget Sound regions had very similar stories. Yeah. In ancient times, there were so many people in the land that they lived everywhere. Soon hunting became bad and food scarce so that people quarreled over hunting territories. Even in these days, the people were skilled in making fine canoes and paddles from cedars and clothing and baskets from their bark. In dreams, their wise old men could see the future and there came a time when they all had similar bad dreams that kept coming to them over and over again. The dreams warned of a great flood. This troubled the wise men who told each other about their dreams. They found that they all had dreamed that rain fell for such a long time or that the river rose, causing a great flood so that all of the people were drowned. They were much afraid and called a council to hear their dreams and decide what should be done. One said that they should build a great raft by tying many canoes together. Some of the people agreed, but others laughed at the old men and their dreams. The people who believed in the dreams worked hard building the raft. It took many moons of hard work, lashing huge cedar log canoes together with strong ropes of cedar bark. When it was completed, they tied the raft with a great rope of cedar bark to the top of Mount Cowichan by passing one end of the rope through the center of a huge stone, which can still be seen there. During the time that people were working on the raft, those who did not believe in the dreams were idle and still laughed, but they did admire the fine solid raft when it was at last finished and floated in Cowichan Bay. Soon after the raft was ready, huge raindrops started falling. Rivers overflowed and the valleys were flooded. Although people climbed Mount Cowichan to avoid the great flood, it was too soon underwater. 
But those who had believed the dreams took food to the raft and they and their families climbed into it as the waters rose. They lived on the raft many days and could see nothing but water. Even the mountaintops had disappeared beneath the flood. The people became much afraid when their canoes became to flood and they prayed for help. Nothing happened for a long time. Then the rain stopped. The waters began to go down after time and finally the raft was grounded on top of Mount Cowichan. The huge stone anchor and heavy rope had held it safe. As the water gradually sank lower and lower, the people could see their lands, but their homes had all been swept away. The valleys and forests had been destroyed and the people went back to their land and started to rebuild their homes. After a long time, the number of people increased until once again the land was filled and the people started to quarrel again. This time they separated into tribes and clans, all going to different places. The storytellers say this is how people spread all over the earth. Now, I just kind of found that pretty interesting just by how many flood stories are in all types of uh, regions of, you know, this realm that we find ourselves in. And it just kind of seems, you know, it all kind of ties together. Obviously, you can compare it to the Noah's flood. And um, I think there's some other ones, too. Uh, I, I love the uh, indigenous stories of the Great Flood. Like, it's always... Uh, there's 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 a few different of them you know and like reading right. a couple of atlantis books like you get a, a lot of them but i've never heard that one and uh it's fascinating to hear the indigenous stories of the great flood now that just concretes it in that there in fact was the great flood right and that's a little bit i had that out of in my mind when i was looking at you know those earlier 1700s maps and just kind of seeing where i was like maybe california was an island at one point and the water levels were different when they were sailing by and who knows <laughs> like, i don't know hmm. uh, i'm open to a lot but uh, it, it says that the emerging. it says the stone is still on the mountain have you looked into that that, that no i did not but that would be a pretty cool thing to check out if, well uh, i looked i just looked up the word uh mount kawichan moorhead because moorhead is like the name of like an anchor right, right? and uh, i found mount sula suhalam which is like, I guess, in the Mount Kawachan region, it's like a smaller mountain or a more specific name for one of the mountains. Um, right. Yeah. So maybe it's there. I don't know. I don't find any, I can't find any pictures of the stone itself, but that'd be a cool thing to track down, huh? Yeah. I wonder if it's like a stone with like a hole in it or something that they could tie or like something they could tie around it maybe. Or... Cool. And yeah, we've, we've found, Tara and I have found stones like that in, uh, on the east coast with like mysterious really circular holes in them we have one mm. with us actually oh interesting yeah this one's like a smaller this is called like a holy stone but yeah uh, yeah i have found uh i think it's a net uh weight stone walking the beach there where there's just this definite groove that looks like it's worn from just having a wet rope kind of just like rubbing on it you know time after time after time and so uh definitely seems like a, a net anchor or some kind of fishing basket or something. Uh, and this is another kind of story that kind of goes back to that Duwamish River um, glacial uh, forming map that we were looking at where obviously they mostly of the recent stuff was man-made, but they have this one, another legend of how the area was formed and it's called the story of the North Wind Weir. And uh, in days gone by, there was once a war between the North Wind people and the Chinookwind people. 
Chinook Wind was married to Mountain Beaver Woman, the daughter of North Wind. The people of North Wind Village did not like the man, so they killed him and his tribe. The only left alive was North Wind's mother, and North Wind held the land under his power, covering it with ice and snow. He stretched a fish weir of ice across the Duwamish River. No fish could get past this trap, and further up the valley, the people starved. The land was desolate. It came to pass that Mountain Beaver Woman had a son, Stormwind. Chinook Wind was his father. As the boy grew up, he was warned by the North Wind people to never go near the mountain. They knew that he would question the old women and that she would tell him how his people were killed. Each, do- each day, the young man would hunt closer and closer to the mountain. One day, he got close enough to hear the old woman crying, so he went to her house. Inside, he found her weeping for her dead son. The ravens, who were the slaves of North Wind, perched above her, dropping filth onto her face. This, along with the tears on her cheeks, had frozen into ice. For her fire, she had only the tops of cattail rush, which would blaze quickly, providing no warmth. Stormwind listened to her story. He went and pulled up big fir trees by the roots and laid them at her door for fuel. He also gave the old woman a bone-pointed arrow to punch the ravens with. He resolved to fight the Northwind people for what they had done. Stormwind left to retrieve his mother. While he was away, the old woman wove baskets to capture the rain. Some were large and coarsely woven to hold large raindrops, where others were tightly tightly woven to hold fine mist. She left them outside to capture the rain. Soon, Stormwind returned. The next day, the old woman emptied the baskets and flooded the valley. Stormwind went down to the river. He tore up many trees and threw them into the water until they shattered the fish trap, turning it to stone. These stones can still be seen when the water runs between them at low tide. Stormwind melted the ice and blew it north. The young man and his grandma beat Northwind. Down the valley he ran, the land flooding behind him. If Northwind had not been chased away, we should all be cold and hungry all the time. As it is, we have a little snow and ice, but not for long. And kind of another flood part, technically, and uh, just kind of interesting kind of showing that the temperate nature of Western Washington, where it's like, yeah, usually we get some snow and ice, but it definitely doesn't last. And we are more... uh, and more temperate, I guess. But I just thought those two stories were pretty interesting. I love, I love those. Uh, yet again, you know, just the fruitfulness <laughs> and the creative imagination uh, and colorful imagination of the uh, indigenous stories are always really, really uh, right. So yeah, I uh, I could definitely I just listening to them. read them like of all different nations and just kind of keep because I you know there's so many that I didn't even get into like we're gonna get into a little bit of uh, mythology stuff here which uh, I definitely find fascinating and I keep buying mythology books from pretty much every part of the world and just trying to you know just see what I can learn because a lot of stuff I think is stories trying to teach us things with kind of colorful stories or teach us things about life, about, you know, where we live and how we should live and all these kind of bigger topics that, you know, one might find themselves wondering about, but, um, but sometimes this can be more technical or maybe not as interesting to remember, you know, specifically what you should be doing so that they should make this colorful story that is more easy to remember and, uh, 
easier to kind of pass along because most of these people is just kind of oral tradition for their stories. And that's at least recently with kind of what I've been looking into are more people that largely relied on oral traditions. Because I feel like as soon as you start writing things down, then things start to change depending on who controls the printing presses or whatever. And then usually they try to, you know, change things to their liking rather than the way that it was. But one, I, I hadn't heard of this um, mythological character, Bookwuss. I had seen some other spellings for his Bakwuss and uh, might not be pronouncing that right, but that's probably a lot of these, <laughs> these words. But he's a supernatural ghost-like figure known as the wild man of the woods or man of the sea, associated with spirits of those that had drowned. He's a skeletal, long-haired wild man that lives in an invisible house in the forest and attracts spirits of the drowned to his home. He also tries to persuade humans to eat ghost food so they'll become like him. Sometimes mistaken for the Salishan Sasquatch, however, that is a separate spirit being, although both are supposed to be hairy forest dwellers. Then we, hear, we can see some masks that I found depicting him and um, a tr tribal member reenacting one of the stories um, kind of mid-ceremony uh, or powwow, I suppose. Mm. It's um, reminiscent of the fairy lore stories from Europe of like eating fairy food and becoming trapped in the fairy realm. He wants you to eat ghost food so you can yeah, become like him. Exactly. Like, I guess if you are with a group, he might not come out you. But if you find yourself alone in the woods, probably near water, and then some strange person comes up to you and offers you food, don't eat it <laughs> unless maybe you want to become a ghost. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it could be wild. Uh, <laughs> or you hungry for some brownies? They're made of ghosts. <laughs> and then there's another one that kind of spoke to me for kind of what I've been researching. It's uh, Kumugwe or Kumokwa, which is the chief of the undersea world, also known as Copper Maker and the wealthy one. He lives in a great house under the sea made out of copper that is filled with wealth and treasure. He's guarded by an octopus that has sea lions protecting his home. He's responsible for the tides, storms in winter, calm seas in summer, and all the riches deposited onshore from the tides. And he can bestow powers on those he deem worthy. And there's a lot of different kind Whoa. of depictions of him. Um, and he was also for like a very good healer. And so people would say that they would try to find his house in the sea and however that would go down. I don't know, but I guess, you know, deep sea diving, taking your canoe out or looking for him. And usually it would be for, you know, some kind of a quest if you needed extra healing or things like that. And I really like this mask on the right that kind of has the abalone eyes and the copper because I have been with some of the stuff I've been working with. I've been using abalone and definitely a lot of beach theme kind of stuff. And uh, but you can see he's got the octopus head on one kind of I'm guessing an anemone head. Yeah, that kind of spikes on that one, an urchin. Um, but very, very cool. That cool. mask on the right with the abalone eyes is super cool. Like right. I'm going to have to uh, just go online and find me a picture of that. Yeah, it like, definitely. Super it's a beautiful mask. Beautiful work. Yeah, definitely. And like, I'm not positive any of these are um, like ancient or like artifacts, but are probably more modern recreations by um, tribal members um, is what I found. They're, yeah, the color, they're like aqua, green, blue. 
such a beautiful color. Yeah. And even like the copper black, I think of the nice kind of contrast there too. And yeah, that big nose ring is <laughs> pretty sweet. And then the Thunderbird, which we find in a lot of um, native cultures all throughout North America. And this is a mythical creature said to be the dominating force of natural activity, creating booms of thunder by flapping his wings, shooting lightning out of his eyes, creating rainstorms to water the vegetation on Earth, create earthquakes and volcanic eruptions with a wingspan as long as two canoes. Now, with going into this, you know, there's a few, a couple different stories, uh, you know, legends um, with him relating to native people. But also, I came into some. Uh, possible sightings kind of going throughout North America of different things or, you know, people would think that maybe it was someone seeing, uh, actually, I think even Lewis and Clark thought they saw one, but then historians think that it could have been a California condor, which might have had more of a northerly um, range that compared to where it is today. And actually, I think now they're trying to reintroduce um, the condors into the Columbia River Valley in between Washington and Oregon because it's just less populated, but a similar climate to where they'd be living um, in California, where they're not doing as, as good. But it came across the two two stories of uh, Thunderbirds in the in the region, one in the Cascade Mountains and the other in the Olympic Mountains on the Olympic Peninsula. The first bird lived part of his time inside Mount St. Helens. It created earthquakes and volcanic eruptions when it rolled over in its sleep. The rest of the time, it lived at the bottom of Spirit Lake at the foot of the mountain. The native people saw the water bubble and froth when the Thunderbird was angry. According to one legend, the bird attacked many other creatures until the raven killed it after which the Thunderbird's body fell into the Columbia River, where it formed several islands. Other people believe it is still alive and is responsible for the recent eruption of the mountain. And many generations ago, the Quileute people on the Olympic Peninsula were starving, in part because a giant killer whale was eating all the fish. Their chieftain appealed the Great Spirit for help, and it summoned the Thunderbird. When Thunderbird appeared to the people with the body of the whale in its claws, which it gave to them to eat, then flew to Mount Olympus where it made its home. And though it was helpful to humans, the bird valued its privacy. Hunters climbing the mountain were scared away by the ice and rock falls the bird created when it smelled them. Man, I love this because I, I grew up, so I was born in Port Angeles, but I grew up about 30 minutes away from Mount St. Helens. Uh-huh. And Spirit Lake. Yeah, Spirit Lake. Yeah, times. Uh-huh. It's, and then the Columbia River ran right through my hometown. And I just love hearing all this stuff. It's really, uh, oh, for sure. It's reminding me, oh, bringing you back home. Yep. Oh. And of course, we couldn't leave out the Sasquatch. Well, but, and before we get, before we get into that too much. Um, yeah. I noticed there was a totem pole in one of the pictures you just showed. And I think yes. that's something maybe, unless you have more slides on it later on, we could spend a little bit of time talking about. Maybe Roman can even add to this too, since you've spent time in Washington, Tara, as well. Me, I'm the yeah. only one here who hasn't been to Washington. But to me, it feels like totem poles are very uh, mysterious. Maybe they have some kind of energetic architectural component that we don't typically hear about because we're so focused on like the 
symbolic idea and it being sort of an ancestral lineage type of you know we also have the phrase the cultural phrase low man on the totem pole right which it right, comes right. from the totem pole you know the the idea that whoever's on the top is like the most sacred uh out of all the symbols which i'm wondering is that true is that just sort of what well, people of have remembered it thunderbird that i came across was that and it might have been a different variation of that one i read where he uh takes the the orca and uh you know removes it so that because it was eating all their salmon which they were reliant on and then as a then sort of what you know for for helping um the people that he he, you know told them that he is only to be at the top of the totem pole with his wings outstretched and so that's why you see them commonly um at that point but i also think you know i didn't do a huge dive into totem poles specifically, um, but just had, you know, obviously come across them looking through art and stuff like that. Mm. But um, there is uh, definitely kind of a, you know, a hierarchy and they kind of are almost more, I feel like uh, representations of certain families and kind of, kind of tell that. So they mostly located in people's homes or places that are significant to a particular family. Like where do you typically see totem poles just traveling through Seattle or Washington? Um, Well, you know, I haven't seen a ton. I mean, there's the one um, at Pioneer Square, but that's actually a uh, Tlingit, which I think is an Alaskan tribe. um, And they didn't bring that until the um, early 20th century like early 1900s and um that i I don't know the full story on that one only came across that it had been like vandalized but a time or two where they had to kind of rebuild it and uh bring in more artists to kind of redo it um but i i don't know if it was as like common of a practice as it might be like laid out where this one is um these pictures of these is on Brockton Point, which is on Vancouver Island, uh, BC, which I just kind of thought was a cool picture because it had all of these together that you could see with a couple of them mm. with uh, with the Thunderbird. But that's another thing that I kind of, I'm not an expert at telling um, Thunderbird from Eagle, which they do have some that are Eagle and they mm-hmm. look to me very similar. I think the Thunderbird has some things on its head, like um, in the picture with the whale, how it has these curls. I think that is one way you can tell uh, the Thunderbird apart. Uh, I just kind of thought this other picture of one carrying a child <laughs> because they, they were potentially could steal. I mean, it was a huge bird. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, the, the, to touch on the totem bulls symbology, like there's, there's a lot, like it's, it's pretty prominent in there. I don't, I'm not an expert in it by any means, but I do know one of the main things is like you were saying, it, it represents like a coat of arms for, um, families and then um, at you know that being a symbol of protection or uh, ancestors going on there and um, a, a lot of times almost like hieroglyphs in the sense of like telling stories you know you're able right. to tell your family story or t- tell a story of a village or tell a story of certain local history through the totem and um, you know I'd be interested into and now, now we're just <laughs> this is Thank you, Mark, for going back on this because it's actually incredibly fascinating and we should probably try to start to circulate this kind of heat again into, um, you know, rejuvenating the the First Nations people always, of course, Uh, but their location being um, 
some like having some sort of celestial uh resonance or, or something associated with magnet magnetism or sacred sites um or anything along definitely. those lines i definitely am going to look into that after this chat thanks thanks for bringing all this stuff up man this is a great well, presentation. and i should point out the one thing that i also liked about the picture it says gateways which we know from if chad was here gateway is a significant concept and word and exactly. all this stuff we're talking about but the word brockton this guy brockton uh it's named after an engineer i just looked that up i didn't know that ahead of time but uh, I've been studying a little bit about Amish folk magic after Tara oh, nice. and I traveled mm. down to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And one of the German words for like a shaman or a magic medicine man is Brocker, which I think Brock did a point, you know, maybe it comes some similarity there. I don't know. People. I, I think there was even like an archway that they had built there, which, oh. um, you know, definitely has kind of portal gateway vibes for sure. Yeah. Damn. All right. Cool. Well, yeah, it looks like we're making a lot of, <laughs> we're making a lot of connections here. Let's get to Sasquatch because he has come up on this show before. Uh, Roman, where were, where were we when we, Tara, do you remember which episode we talked about Sasquatch? Where were we in the world? Was it Minnesota or, or was it with uh, William Henry? No. William yeah, we might have talked about Sasquatch when we went to Minnesota. I don't think there's any Sasquatch in Indiana. <laughs> yeah. But either way, uh, here there, we are. There's definitely um, stories of it in, in more... Um, well, I mean, nowhere else people. is he more famous but than the Northwest. The Northwest so. is definitely where um, I feel like there's right. more, most of them for sure. And so that's why I was like, I, I have to get into Sasquatch, of course. Yeah, and for sure. For anyone who might not know that he's, you know, a large six to 15 foot tall, fully hairy being that appears all across North America in stories, but commonly known as Bigfoot, but mostly in uh, the Pacific Northwest region. And the Sasquatch is actually an anglicization of the Salish word. Um, I've seen it Saskets or Saskuch, I think, something like that, which means wild man or hairy man. Sort of, let's even see kind of similar to that book was that we've got earlier that, you know, a similar, um, similar name, similar hairy features. And the Sasquatch name gained popularity in the 1930s by this uh, J.W. Burns, who was assigned to the Chehalis Nation. And he kind of worked, I think he worked at a school and had heard all these stories from his students of them. And he, you know, anglicized the name to Sasquatch as we kind of know them today. But they claimed the Chehalis people that he has a, um, who they had an extra close bond with and believe that he had the ability to move between the physical and spiritual realm. And kind of from my research, I kind of am starting to lean that way as well. And one of the best kind of, I think, analogies that I could think of for it was like, if you have like a radio, like just like an old FM radio, if you're on, you know, 101, you're picking up that channel and you hear what's on that. If you switch it to 102, you don't hear what was on 101, but that doesn't mean it's not there anymore. You're just not tuned to pick it up. And I feel like there's something like that where they're able to kind of phase in and out of this reality and disappear. I've got a story coming up later. And these pictures on the on the right 
they're kind of interesting. I came across, there's another mask. And I guess the picture on the left is the original first time it was used or when it was being used in these Sasquatch days in 1938 at the Harrison Hot Springs in BC. And then it disappeared for 75 years and then um, resurfaced. And that's on, on the right. It definitely looks like it's lost some air, but um, <laughs> kind of a f- funny looking mask. And it, it's way bigger than I initially, like I saw the picture on the right first and then kind of looking into that, um, came across that other picture. Uh, and <laughs> it definitely kind of, the uh, the mag- magnetic anomalies in Washington, you know, people don't get it twisted. Uh, it's it's heavy. Volcanic activity there is heavy. Which, right. Which can Volcan- yeah, there'd be a huge said earlier, the ring of fire. Um, sure, there's ley lines going through the area. I didn't find specific um, map of that, but I have seen lines kind of going up from kind of the Vancouver, BC area, kind of close to where I am right now currently, and then kind of going down, passing through the Seattle area. And um, I found some mound sites in the Olympia region that even living in Washington my whole life, I had never heard of called the uh, Mima Mounds. Uh, well, I have a slide on that. Where's, uh, oh, never mind. <clears throat> I look forward to seeing that. Yeah. Lots of Seems tubes, like lots of lots of lava tubes. Sasquatch. Oh, yeah. Have you and... done the eight caves? Have you ever done the heard of those? Oh yeah, down in Oregon or right in the Oregon Washington border. Yeah, it's it's kind of I think the Gifford Pinshaw National Forest. I think sort of the Mount St. Helens ish region. I think a little south of there. But uh, from where you go, Tara? That um, Sasquatch and Thunderbirds seem to share the same um, quality of going in between worlds. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. Like, and maybe that's the distinction between Thunderbird and Eagle. But. Right. Definitely. I think there is more of a, I think all the kind of, you know, popular characters or mythological figures, even like Raven, Coyote, like they definitely have more of their magical attributes, but I, I do feel like uh sasquatch and thunderbird definitely seem more uh spiritually inclined or what have you but i I won't read all of these but just kind of from this book that i found these are some excerpts of kind of different region stories that are kind of interesting about what what they knew about them and, and like they talk about them like they're just out there in the wild and doing their thing um where Sasquatches are usually seen singly. They're described as men covered with dark fur, more than eight feet tall, who leave footprints about 20 inches long. The Sasquatches would unconscious would cause unconsciousness if they touch a person. They would abduct women whom they would keep. They would cause these women to have a half-human child, and they would steal fish and other food from their for their native wives and their children. They were said to have some form of simple language which some women learned. And if the woman managed to escape and reenter society, she would suffer bouts of unconsciousness because she had been with the Sasquatches and wasn't like a human anymore. She had forgotten her language and hair was starting to grow all over her body. And then let's see, there's another one that was kind of interesting. I think I might be a uh, part, part Sasquatch. I have to show the hair all over your body. Sure. Yeah. You know, my neck and my back. I'm like, wait, <laughs> don't see me on a full moon. You know what I'm saying? Then 
the Kamekwes is a great tall animal or whatever it is that lived in the mountains. It was like a man, but shaggy like a bear, like a big monkey, seven feet tall. They went away when the whites came. The Indians never killed any. It was a pretty wise animal or whatever you call it. If you saw one, it made you kind of crazy. They throw their power toward you. They whistle only, can't talk. They whistle when you go out in the evening. Once some white people caught one and tried to feed him, they gave him potatoes. He picked them up, looked at them and threw them away. They gave him meat and he did the same thing. I guess some make you crazy. They are real slackwims, meaning powerful. They grow hair on the body. There are none here anymore, but I guess there are some up in the mountains around Chilliwack, which is right where I am. If a person could get one for a guardian spirit, I guess it would be pretty tough. No, I had never heard of one with it. I don't know what they eat. Uh, these are kind of direct quotes, which I kind of thought were interesting from various people. And there's from the front excerpts from this book that I found uh, Rain Coast Sasquatch. So if you're looking for Sasquatch reading based on the uh, Puget Sound, uh, I'm get that book. Okay. Yeah, that's a good one for sure. Um, and then let's see. I think that's about it, but definitely kind of interesting, you know, capturing women and, uh, all right, here's another one, this, uh, of, uh, this el elderly Naima woman said that her people had stories of women being carried away and around the turn of the century. In one case, the woman was her grandmother. And after either returning from the forest or being returned, she gave birth. The infant was sadly malformed and was in fact stillborn. That was not the only time this happened. Another woman was stolen and lived with the Sasquatch in the mountains for more than a year. This was around the same time. She brought back with her a very strange baby, which lived for a little while. He was not right and died soon after the return. I don't think he was even a year old. These things happened in my grandmother's time, but nothing like that has happened for a long time. We don't like to talk about them much. I mean, I could definitely see why that'd be a pretty, <laughs> I don't know, definitely a keep to yourself kind of story, but I, I hadn't heard that about Sasquatch that he was capturing women and impregnating them with, you know, some mm. uh, half and half, I suppose. Mm. There's a yeah, um, changelings. There's the, um, uh, there's some folklore, some mythos that the uh, Sasquatch are, you know, the Nephilim uh, of, of mm -hmm. you know, or, or like some, you know, which mm -hmm. kind of correlate to the stories of needing to breed with the humans so they could create more of these offspring. So that's pretty interesting. It, Definitely. This, the Sasquatch mysteries are go deep. This is this is great. And then kind of another kind of more modern, um, you know, I didn't go into a ton of, you know, potentially fake pictures and footprints and stuff like that. But here's another book uh, called Who'd, Who's Watching You? An Exploration of the Bigfoot Phenomenon in the Pacific Northwest by Linda Suchi. And they're talking about the Spirit Lake area after the eruption of Mount St. Helens. And um, this details that Mr. Bradshaw, whose father was a supervisor for Warehouser, kind of this like timber company that's up here is pretty oh, nice. Yeah. And uh, 
He was sent to the Spirit Lake area to help keep the curious folks out of the way of a helicopter landing zone that was hastily constructed. He describes how the National Guard collected the carcasses of dead animals in heaps and piled them up high for eventual cremation via napalm. <laughs> Deer in one, elk in another, and so on. The corpses were covered with tarps. Mr. Bradshaw was placed in charge of one pile of dead animals in particular. The pile was covered and no one was allowed to come near it. Armed U.S. National Guard personnel were guarding the pile. On the day they were going to move this group of bodies, Bradshaw was standing very close to the pile and was told to keep his mouth closed about what we, he was to witness. When the tarps were removed, he was amazed to see the bodies of those of Sasquatch, some badly burned and some not. They were placed in a large net and lifted into the back of a truck, which was then tarped over. He asked a guardsman what would happen to these bodies, and the guardsman replied, they'll study them or whatever. I don't want to know. Or I don't know. It, it's like other stuff. You don't ask. Later that day, his father and the rest were debriefed, told not to talk about what they had witnessed and sent home. And another account details dredging the Cowlitz River uh, two months after the blast. In this account, two Bigfoot corpses were found in the sand and a helicopter associated with the Army Corps of Engineers came and removed the bodies. The other was from a man visiting an aunt who lived outside of Spokane, which is in eastern Washington, uh, near Fairchild Air Force Base. He saw a large double rotor helicopter overhead about 100 to 150 feet with a cargo net hanging below that contained at least three dead Bigfoot bodies. <laughs> Hairy, gray, ash-coated arms and legs were seen. I got a real good look at them, the witness said. He reported the sighting to several federal agencies and threatening phone calls were returned a few days later. There were no Bigfoot or Sasquatch parts in there. <laughs> and of course, you know, the government would cover up any any evidence but then this is my personal photograph of here in whatcom county i was duck hunting and this is in a field out of kind of in the linden area which is sort of close to canada and just south there and we're in this deserted field this is me and my buddy and the boot print on the bottom is my like uh full-size like waiter boots that are like insulated pretty big and, you know, I estimate, you know, that's at least a foot or 12 inches. What size that. shoe are you? Uh, I wear a size 11. Okay. So that's and, about and, a size 11 boot, a little bigger because it's a right, snow it's boot. A snow, yep. And like insulated boot. And so this, like, obviously there's some slidage from the step, but like you can definitely see bare footprints, like toes. Right. And this is in either, I think like early January, like kind of near the end of duck season. Mm. We're in this deserted field in this farmland where there's like no house on it. Nobody, you know, should have been there. This is, this is at sunrise. And we had to kind of hike in a little ways from where we parked because there's just a little holding pond that uh, ducks would, that like doesn't freeze over unless it's really cold. And so we just kind of hike into it from... Um, now, how far you know, did these tracks go for? This was a single these, track. These tracks didn't didn't go very far, and this is where it ties into me thinking that they phase in and out, and so that it was like there for a little bit and then gone. And like if someone was like faking this or whatever, I tried to like debunk this as <laughs> many ways as I could of like, okay, someone put on fake feet prints or whatever. But like, I feel like if you were gonna do that, you'd pick like a trailhead or somewhere where you thought someone's definitely going to see it, not the middle of nowhere, essentially. Off the beaten path. And right. And this is at like dawn. And like, I don't think anyone knew that me and my buddy were going out to this specific spot in the morning. And it just, 
you know, nothing really added up to me other than that's a large barefoot print at uh, dawn, essentially, like the sun had just come up and in the snow. So, this, you, you know, if it is a barefoot, they're walking barefoot if it's just a person. And, you know, maybe it's a fake foot size shoe, but like it's still, it still didn't add up to me. And just knowing where I'm at regionally, I thought that that that's a Sasquatch print. <laughs> but this this is back like five, six years ago. Um, and then also in my research came across uh that's Sasquatch. Oh. Huh. I'd second that. <clears throat> yeah, I would third that. Unless there's some kind of bear with round toes. Oh. Where's that slide? Oh, who's that guy? Oh, oh man. Who's that sweet one? They had it twice. What happened? Hmm. Suspense. Oh, just kidding. Dang it. Government doesn't want us to show that Sasquatch photo, bro. I know, like this. I can't even like select the image. It's weird. Are you using Microsoft PowerPoint? That must be why Bill Gates is getting in LA. We're too Libre office. So that's like, I found this core back in like, I think it was 1975. The Army Corps of Engineers created this Washington Environmental Atlas that was three years of research. And and at a at the time a tw- a two hundred thousand dollar budget which, oops, I don't want to start from the beginning. And and at the present day amount, that's about like a million dollars, accounting for inflation. Which is now in twenty twenty two, because I think that was like twenty nineteen numbers, is probably a um, billion dollars of what we're dealing with now. Throw an extra throw an extra mill in there, right? But. but it, it basically just identified and described many resources and amenities for Washington State. Um, that were important to citizens of Washington. Like it went on to native flora and fauna and there was an entire page on Sasquatch and it had a map of Washington with all these like markers of like track scene, sighting scene, all all these kind of different things that was like pretty interesting. And then when people kind of brought it up, like why is Sasquatch in this Army Corps of Engineers like field manual atlas that they put out and then they're like they kind of backtracked and they're like oh it, it's just a joke and you know it's like the one joke in the entire thing and that now they're kind of denying that it's there although i think these manuals were kind of used where if any kind of operations were going down in the area you know they wanted their people to know okay here's how much it rains here's animals you might encounter you know and kind of doing that for different states where like other states you know you might worry about snakes and scorpions or whatever here you know, I guess you have to worry about Sasquatch. And it even included some classified uh, FBI uh, analysis of hairs that were found that the FBI concluded that it wasn't human or wasn't any animal that they knew. And and they included these studies in there. And then as soon as like the media coverage kind of broke on it and some articles went out, they basically changed and <laughs> changed their tune and backtracked, uh, you know, which you is, have a PDF of this uh, old magazine, this old al- almanac? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Actually, I might be able to find. I could probably find it really quick. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, there's a bunch of. I I think we were talking about this on the uh, the Rising from the Ashes Telegram or something, but uh, there's a bunch of really old, awesome maps that the government would make and release you know like hey here's all these mineral maps you know for all you 
people interested in going and hounding minerals, you know, like we live in in different times now for sure. And, Definitely. Like uh, here's like a, you know. not the best biggest picture, but this is, this is what it was uh, like a picture of the page and like Sasquatch had his own page, a little artist rendering. And they have all these little dots that are like sightings, tracks, tracks and sightings. Oh, you're on the, you need to share your whole oh, screen. I see. Just. Shoot. Hmm. Esoteric America Sasquatch specials <laughs> have <laughs> episodes dedicated to this is, uh, yeah. this is the hidden side of America. So yeah, it's perfect. It fits right in. We don't have that much more time. It looks like we're running out of space on the SD card and it's getting late over yeah, here. Yeah, for sure. But uh, if you want to power over to like, I don't know, some uh, what, some slides that you feel like shouldn't be left out before we uh, wind down here. Uh, let's see. I'll, yeah, I'll just kind of. And we're totally open to having you back to uh, complete this presentation because, you know, Chad's yeah. not here and I'm sure he would have a lot to add. Uh, oh, yeah. to what we said already and to the more architectural aspects of what we might get into. So, yeah. Yeah, I definitely have uh, the architecture section coming up. And I did that kind of before the Great, Fud, mm. great Fire um, uh, section, which there's just a, mostly like pictures for that to kind of look through. Mm. Um, and just kind of the founding of Seattle. I mostly kind of followed this Doc Maynard guy, which he was one of the main founders. This guy. There's, the, there's the Denny Party. Um, and this guy, he's, he's from Ohio and he basically, um, was way too nice of a doctor in Ohio. And so he kind of went bankrupt by never turning anyone down. He gave people unlimited credit and he, I guess he owed like $30,000 at, at the time, which is an insane amount of money. And then, so he's just like, he didn't really like love his wife anymore. So he basically just like, all right, I'm going, going West. He thought I was going to go to the California gold gold mines and kind of do that uh, kind of thing. And, and then along the, along the trail, he, you did doctoring cause he basically left with basically the clothes on his back and like, you know, one trunk with some books and some medical equipment and medicine and, and, and then basically just doctored along the trail and like reading some kind of stuff through his, his like diary was kind of interesting, but it's basically like cholera, 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 cholera. Uh -huh. That was like all he was just basically treating. And mostly he wasn't able to treat it, but then would still kind of get paid by people. They're like, you know, help, you know, my dad or mom or, you know, grandparent or whoever and heal them. And so then he'd get paid and then they would just kind of end up dying anyways. And then he just kind of made more money doing that than he did at his practice. Was there any uh, alchemical stories tied in with this doctor here? I, I, I didn't get into any of any of that or didn't find anything with uh, what exactly he was using, but um, that would be interesting. I, I actually wonder if he has a published diary because this was just in this book uh, that I had found called Skid Road because the, the main industry of Seattle that kind of got it started was uh, the timber industry. Coal was also another one that was pretty important. Um, also fishing and uh, ship making and just kind of shipping in general or moving of goods. But the term skid road was because of the hills in Seattle. Um, they use kind of gravity in creating these log skids and they would just skid the logs down the hill right to the mill. 
And then that area, which which became uh, Pioneer Square in Seattle, was kind of a seedy area. It kind of went with that direction of just kind of, you know, rough and tumble types. And so that's huh. kind of where, or at least one of the places where the Skid Row kind of comes from up sort of a bad or area of town yeah well um, lumberjacks de definitely have like a wild reputation right so that makes sense that they would name like those types of places skid row and they'd use these logging skids that's cool right yeah for sure uh and it's just a picture of kind of the seattle um wharf here with the mill i believe this is it on the right uh or might be off shoot or off to the side uh, <laughs> all the logs that just fall into the river when they go off trail and probably yeah it's like, it's like <laughs> so giant like, logs rolling down well, the hill. hey my grandfather and grandmother grew up in rural canada and they told me stories about swimming in the river and the logs would be just flowing down the river for you know from the logging site down to wherever they were you know scooping them up at the end of the river or the dam and yeah, right. you could literally like swim over and ride it down the river if you <laughs> wanted to. Like, I'm sure it was kind of a fun, adventurous thing. <laughs> yeah. One thing that kind of about this picture of like, how do I not see like a single person? Like I, I started, I was like looking at this for a while and then like me just. Everybody was working. Well, yeah, but <laughs> this photographer guy was working. It was like, work you see other photos later. It's like, you always see people and they're wearing their like, three-piece suit with their like bowler hat or like all this like they're just people like yeah all about it seems like and then this one i started looking at it and being like this is just like miniatures <laughs> but i was yeah i'm curious too because i was gonna say earlier like uh, when so when i i did go to school my little stint in college up and where we crossed paths at western um i i learned a lot about geology because i was going for sustainable uh whatever i can't even remember anymore sustainable education that huxley. and <clears throat> yeah yeah huxley yeah, and i sure. honestly wish i had stayed but i dropped out was uh taking a little too much psychedelics at the time and was hey like, i can't be in this trap <laughs> i did environmental science <laughs> and, at, at huxley oh really yeah we told him man we were taking the same classes that's insane no, man, we were yeah, in there's the a lot of that you guys are taking the same acid too uh, hey that too <laughs> <laughs> um but so i learned a lot about just you know the geological makeup of washington because we covered that a lot in class and what a lot of people don't know is that seattle experiences earthquakes every day uh, all of washington ex actually a lot a lot more places than people think experience earthquakes constantly right. um but there's massive amounts of tremors and um you know i don't know like i just i think that there's something going on with like the the bay there and all these corporations and this doctor <laughs> it sounds like there's all these feds going on but anyways there's just uh there's a lot of earthquakes and so you know, just looking at the mud and thinking about the mud flood, whole Tartaria paradigm, uh, and Seattle being right. one of the Seattle, like it's just a like these muds or these hills are just like all mud. Like, we'll, like later the the Denny Regrade is one. He's uh, another uh, founding character. Um, he became one of the wealthiest in the city. Um, this is a picture from 1870. 
and this is his Columbia Street. Um, or wait, no, that, that's not Columbia Street. That was the last picture was Columbia Street and the Yesler Wharf. Um, this one is uh, his home in 1915 is when this picture was taken. That was 50 years after it was built. Um, but he kind of was just like a wealthy party member that that showed up. Uh, Yesler was kind of the other big name. He's the guy that built the steam mill. So that was kind of not just a lumber mill, it actually had steam power to kind of kickstart things. And this is his um, residence in 1860. Just so that's, you know, the city is just barely getting started then. And then here you can kind of see the map uh, of their different claims. And basically uh, the Doc Maynard, he had most of this waterfront area because he wanted to be closest to uh, the Duwamish people that because he was pretty friendly with Chief Seattle. And he ended up having a claim there and ended up kind of talking um, Arthur Denny and this uh, Boren, who was kind of part of the Denny party when they arrived and kind of talked them into kind of moving theirs up a little bit. So then they got, which basically became, you know, downtown Seattle. And then eventually, uh, the Yesler arrived on their dock and he's looking for a place to build his mill. And, uh, Maynard basically just like gave him the waterfront there. And he kind of gave him this little strip that kind of extended out. And then this also over here to the right, kind of, a sort of flag shape, but, uh, definitely like those are kind of the main founding people that are the mo most important, at least. <laughs> and I, I kind of laughed about that historical map of Seattle compiled from various authentic sources. <laughs> you can just write authentic sources and that kind of covers your ass, I guess. Mm. But, um, <laughs> and definitely they went through a lot of, uh, trials and tribulations here's a better picture of the steam mill with kind of more from the backside all the logs piled up the uh, tracks going right out there so that they can just easily ship it to where it needs to go um, and here's kind of it's that smokestack on the left you can see just kind of pretty pretty basic you know buildings it looks like most of what i found at least like pre <laughs> pre-fire was because timber was you know the main resource that er, pretty much everything was wooden buildings and like i came across that in multiple books multiple sources saying that like all buildings were wood but then you start seeing other pictures that were like pre um pre-fire and you're like there's an awful lot of brick buildings and that's kind of when i get to start thinking that there was more to Seattle when they founded it than what they're trying to lead on. They're trying to kind of play this pioneer life role. And uh, here's, here's just some examples of log skids and the skid row, like I was talking about and just how like dangerous these contraptions look, or just these huge evil <laughs> wires, just like flying and the guy just like standing right in the middle. And you can see where they're kind of worn down from just sliding down um, time after time. And then you know, legitimately one. an hour before we went on, there was a tree branch, a huge tree branch, like a 50 to 60 pound tree branch that fell on top of uh, one of our rows of um, I'm here on an agriculture farm and uh, it, it just fell. It just randomly fell on top of like, luckily we had like a fence that like caught most of it and it didn't damage a lot of plants, but mm, um, yeah. <clears throat> That like you're definitely all those wires, you know, 
seeing all those wires with like the pulley systems and then you're also hauling huge logs like right that's yeah pretty nuts uh here's another picture from seattle kind of looking at yesler way it says bohemian beer beer i think it says which yeah i actually gave this picture of this brewery that's like in this castle, <laughs> it looks like, you know, like you really built that just to make beer <laughs> or did you really found that? Uh, and well, what year is this beer? picture? This one, uh, I don't know if I have the date so that actually that's something I can work on, especially if we do a part two, because I have definitely I a lot more slides. To yeah, yeah I think we two. have to. We definitely have yeah. to. I'm not opposed to it. I think this has well, been fascinating. Be. I'm glad we spent as much time as we did on the Native American culture and sort of laid the foundation for this area because yeah. it's going to be a place I'm sure we come back to, uh, especially given that it's Homie Romy's birth grounds. I didn't even realize that. I, I mistook you for a Californian. I I forgot <laughs> that you told me you're a Washingtonian. Yeah, I also lived in Oregon for a long time as well. <laughs> I know. All West Coast, baby. I But this picture right here, I am curious about the year because look at all the power lines everywhere. And then you got multiple spire buildings. Right. Um, yeah, this is like the courthouse of one time. I can't remember that the, they had some nickname for it, like House of Sorrow or something like that. And huh. I think this right, is kind of blurry. I thought wow. this is a, a power station that like come up later like i'm just about to get to the architecture section but there's you know let me i guess uh let's see i guess we can end with these there's these kind of drawings um these bird eye views which are kind of obviously you know it's an artist's uh drawing but i'm just kind of wondering how do you even get this perspective with which to draw if you're not in a hot air balloon or something, which they actually did have some dirigibles and stuff like that. Um, in the, but the one, the pictures that I have, uh, that's way later in the 1909, um, exposition, like world's fair that they had, um, uh, there was some balloon pictures. So like there is that maybe, <laughs> maybe it's some guy in a balloon. Uh, and is it possible he was back. on a mountain on the opposite side or is that the ocean on the, that we're looking at? Like, is there anything that someone could be possibly standing I, on I from mean, that vista? I don't think so. Um, because that was like just like right across is sort of kind of like Tanzan sort of area. Yeah, it's it's the it's the sound, so it's just open water. They'd have to be floating over open water. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. The, huh. and so like this is eighteen seventy eight, and also just one thing that stood out to me initially was like it looks a lot flatter than you know obviously like they have some hills and maybe you know because of the perspective but no all the other ones Ca seattle like, is a motherfucking hill town dude right it, and i've it, walked my ass up and it, down to capitol steep. hill and it's huge yeah and even finding uh you know all these pictures of when they said they like took out hills to then regrade it to then make it flat it seems like it's still just as as hilly as before but i found there's like multiple of these and i don't know if they're all the same artists i guess let's see that this is Beck and Paul. Well, I think it is definitely strange. I hope people don't just chalk it up to this guy sucked at art because clearly he's got like uh, the skill to do all these great details, right. you know, and getting the building. Yeah. Right oh, there's no the, doubt like, in that. Yeah. Like he's clearly a good artist. Another one. This one's kind of blurry or like blown up, but this is the most recent one before the fire. Um, like, mm. 
And, and like, it's still, even, it looks mostly like just kind of like wood buildings. There's like a few, like they kind of highlight them along the edges. Um, a few of the kind of more famous ones that we'll get into, but, uh, are there any, uh, groups that play any group, religious groups, secret society groups? Did you come across any characters like yeah, that? Like County definitely missionaries, beginning. um, Catholics, definitely. There's a lot of churches. I found a lot of church pictures and like some of them were a little bit more modern. Like I kind of stopped most of my research around the early 1900s, just mostly from like time and just totally, you know, run it, not like running out of space, but like I, I have 170 slides here in total and most of them are just pictures. We and, definitely, uh, we definitely got to have you back on. Um, yeah. Especially when Chad's here. Architecture stuff. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And that can let me, um, Cause a lot of these pictures, I just kind of threw them on there and I have the, have them saved with the dates. I just haven't, don't have them like e easily with uh, notes in front of me. Um, uh, but that would definitely be something I'd like to get together for you guys. Yeah. Right on. Well, Max, thank you so much. Why don't you tell folks where they can get in touch with you and tell us a little bit about what they'll find when they do get in touch with you. Cause I know you got some cool stuff available that people could possibly purchase from you. And yeah, if there's any social media, whatnot you'd like to share. Cause yeah. Um, well, I'm kind of on telegram and a lot of these kind of podcast groups, uh, Cirrus Fox, um, is my name there. Um, I have a, te a telegram or <laughs> I have a, uh, Instagram, all these grams, it seems like <laughs> but, um, I have an Instagram, uh, it's alchemist underscore in underscore the underscore machine. So alchemist and machine with mm. underscore and just kind of getting started on that one. So there's not a ton of pictures, but I'll definitely need to be better about uh, taking pictures of what I've been making with my copper electro form, crystal art, crystal wands, um, working on some tuning forks. And um, I actually just this morning I pulled up or collected a bunch of bolt kelp heads. So I'm going to make into rattles um, for kind of a Ooh, shamanic yeah. rattle. Um, and I'm going to obviously plate copper on them and do some fun stuff and um, doing that, like definitely instruments and a lot of uh, healing tools of various things seem to be what I'm being called to make. Um, so if you have anything like that, reach out to me and I'm happy to do custom work. Or if you have an idea for designs, um, I'm definitely, you know, like seeing what people are interested in and what they need for their own healing adventure. And I'm uh, um, all SiriusFox at ProtonMail.com um, if you just want to email me. And uh, I think that's about it. Um, but yeah, yeah no, this has been a, been a blast and yeah, then ha happy to do a part two. Um, yeah, yeah. We got, was, uh, we got big plans for this. More juicy stuff to get into the. Yeah, the, we, the, we got big plans for this podcast and I told Roman uh, every time he's suggested a big city, San Francisco, Seattle, I'm like, we got to do multiple episodes. There's not, we can't just cover it all in yeah. one episode. I mean, we've done uh, smaller towns so far, like Baudette, Minnesota. We covered everything about Baudette pretty much, I'd say. I don't know. Maybe we can uh, venture back over there. Same thing with like Anderson, Anderson, Indiana. There's probably some more stuff there, but that's a smaller place. Seattle. There's a lot going right. on in I, Seattle. Yeah, I was a little bit overwhelmed. And then especially just sort of like, you know, I got a job. I like to do other stuff too. I was like, I've been, I've been <laughs> yeah. So much time. And then I, the more time I spend on it, the more like areas I want to like dig into about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, definitely like a lot of the groups in the area where like I had read some stuff with 
Jesuit encounters with the natives. And like, that was more with that kind of Eastern, um, Eastern Salish or like the inner, um, Salish people. Mm. Uh, but I'm sure they made their way to Seattle and all kinds of probably there was Masonic buildings. I found pictures of, so Freemasons are in the area and, uh, <laughs> even more things to dive into. Right on. Oh yeah. The Freemasons, once they came and took over the coast, man, it was over. Fair game. Right. Fair game. Like San Francisco was a big, uh, trade partner with, with Seattle. And so yeah. that, uh, definitely anything happening in San Francisco, I'm sure was happening in Seattle. Dude, too. they're similar as, as all get bro. I'd, I can't wait till we get further down the road and start uh, making connections between all these, these Mason towns. Cause yeah, it's huge, but I do want to say, cause I, I love that you're making tuning forks and, and different types of like healing stuff, but you know, you gotta be careful, man, because you never know if Sasquatch is right on the other side of the vibrational wall. Um, well then, uh, you know, you might just open a portal with your tuning forks, dude. So yeah, just be careful if I'm playing them out in the woods or something. That's for sure. And don't leave them on the top of your car either. Oh, right on Max. I got to check out your tuning forks, brother. And thank you so much folks for exploring Seattle with us. We will return to Seattle, of course, and, uh, have a great moment exploring your own backyard. Post episode four of Esoteric America, we traveled to Seattle so far. We've been to Anderson, Indiana, Baudette, Minnesota, Nashville, Tennessee, and now Seattle, Washington. And with a place like Seattle, uh, it's a pretty safe bet that we'll be doing another episode, maybe a third or a fourth, however many it'll take to sift through Seattle. But yeah, there's a lot going on there, man. What were your thoughts on this episode? Mm, yeah, I thought I thought he did a great job at um, getting getting research together. It was really thorough, and um, you know, having a, a a genuine interest in some cool esoteric stuff off the bat. You know, so that helped uh, help with the mindset. But yeah, I really love the um, the talk uh, of the pre-Columbian takeover the pre-european takeover and uh of the indigenous people mm. there's a lot to dig in on that i mean there really is like i, I really um uh, i really am interested in it and i just i'm doing there's so much research we're doing for all the other shows and things that um it is yet to pop up in the main bubble of but of interest or not interest, but uh, of current research, but it will happen soon. And I will uncover mysteries that I've been a, uh, a inquisitive in my, in my realm in the indigenous eras and the first nations peoples here in mm. the Americas. Uh, and I know you got a love for that too, brother. Yeah. The masks really hit me and the totem poles too. There's a totem pole um, that is in a neighborhood that my father and I used to mow lawns in. And I remember every time we finished mowing the lawns, we would drive by it and I just kind of like look at it and think, ah, that's cool. Maybe there's like a native family there. Most likely there is. 
but yeah yeah i've always been fascinated by those i think there's something going on energetically i wonder if there's a certain special oh, type yeah. of wood they use uh for those probably, do you know do probably no i don't um like i said like i i don't know too much but i'm going to buy some books and start doing some digging here uh, mm. just for this for our for our show here you know like it's it's good to have that um kind of just general understanding and you know i'm just envisioning like walking through the woods you know you get to your place of ceremony or whatever and you have a big totem there in the trees in the forest in a very special place that's energetically you know resonant and just seeing that in my head you know i'm like getting some cool jitters because something that's going to come up a lot and you know these these episodes in the show in general is these concepts of the elementals the entities that live within the elements and as we're traveling to all these different places geographically you know we're gonna have these stories uh and it's and that's probably one of my favorite parts that we're going to uncover is all these different stories of elementals in these areas around the country you know, and Manly P. Hall talks about elementals and in, in some of his writings, and it, it goes back, you know, every element holds specific sort of uh, uh, entity folklore, you know, I mean, like you brought up the fae, the, in the fairy people, you know, that's, that's huge. And, you know, you go down to uh, places that have are super humid. There you have it too, you know, so that's something I'm super looking forward to. And I'm glad we spent quite a big chunk on the uh, Sasquatch realm, dude. <laughs> like mm. That was some dope shit, man. Mm. Yet again, a whole other episode. You can dive in straight up, like just doing Sasquatch on that. Right, right. Yeah, brother. I mean, I think Sasquatch is going to be, I mean, that's why I asked William Henry about the cryptids and what did he call it? The... Uh, one-legged elephant something what was that thing snorkel monster right the one-legged <laughs> yeah, snorkel what? monster that's what it was yeah and it's like okay <laughs> what like we have to ask about cryptids naturally the northwest is like sasquatch's like biggest home you know like he's known everywhere the yeti is probably world famous comparatively but the Sasquatch, yeah, is like synonymous with the Northwest. So we had to bring it up. I'm glad we did. But I yeah. want to ask about cryptids every episode because, I mean, people listening, the history is cool. The First Nations culture is exactly what we want. Myths, everything like that. Architecture, how the town was founded. But I want to get to some like weird stories, weird folklore. So listeners, be on the lookout for that kind of stuff too when you're putting your presentations together and email us at esotericamerica at gmail.com when you're ready to join us on the show. Be sure to put the town or the location in the email submission right in the subject line there maybe even put your name so that way we know what we're getting and yeah please tell us a little bit about yourself you don't have to send your whole presentation in the email but uh, we want people to participate and since this is the fourth episode you're probably already familiar with the format and it's a loose format so play around with it uh, have fun. You can use canva.com. Uh, it's free to make a presentation there. Uh, today's guest used Libra Office, which is probably, in my uh, experience, less um, efficient comparatively to Canva. 
all respect to Max. Um, maybe you did tell him to use Canva and he preferred to use that. That's fine if you prefer to well, use I, that. I, I think that Canva tops you out at 100 slides, but oh, I will okay. agree that Canva is very user-friendly. Well, I think like we should... just trying to pop and make a presentation real quick, you yeah. can go to Canva and make it in like 20 minutes. I've done yeah. it. We should <laughs> cap it. Great source. We should cap it at 100 anyways. It's just because like, I mean, how many... We only got through like 40 slides today so people you know max thank you that's why we got to do a part two but yeah people get ambitious but keep yourself uh you know at ease we don't we're not looking for you to break the world you know whole world down just you know start with something and and yeah share it with what what we have going on on this show i mean geez roman what do you think brother are you excited about this new podcast Oh, dude, I love it. I love it. Like I said, like I'm stoked to check out the cryptids and the elementals. You know, I think it's a good idea to have what we'll send you guys. You know, if you're interested at all, we'll send you guys topic points and a list of of a timeline or whatever you can follow. But having just like a few really symbolic things and just debriefing those things for, you know, like four major things like paranormal cryptids, you know, architectural influence and like mounds and things like that, you know, four or five things you can wrap on that for two hours. No problem. You know, look at the families and the, and, and, and that stuff and specific like major corporations and Hey, you guys get the gist. I'm just rambling over here at this point. <laughs> but yeah, brother, I'm super stoked for doing this, man. Right on. Yeah, me too. Tara, you want to jump in? You got any thoughts on today's episode? Tell us the juice, Tara. Uh, juice, 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 juice. <laughs> the juice, Thunderbird juice, Sasquatch juice. connection was a good one. Yeah, I thought that was cool. I wonder maybe the Sasquatch and the Thunderbird have some kind of alliance. Well, I think it's that other, the otherworldly one. I think how they, um, they like the phasing in and out of this reality and some other reality to bring back little, little spirit nuggets. Um, <clears throat> Maybe. And um, let's see. What else? And I enjoyed listening to the mythologies. And, you know, I would have liked to hear um, him talk about Mount Rainier. Is that near um, Seattle at all? Yeah. It's not far. Huh. Uh, I, there's the three like, major mountains yeah uh yeah mount rainier actually yeah it's got some got some uh got some interesting history i think military wise uh going on there mm, and there's a lot to angry mother (laughs) washington is washington is thick like it is really thick i mean uh you know if you yeah there's there's so much but what's interesting though you know bringing up the thunderbird again and you know popping in and out of you know Mm. existence or whatever the thunderbird is in fact related to like storms and lightning and so you got to think that's heavy electricity right mm. and fire portal fire and electricity <clears throat> something that would be able to vibrate at such a high point that it could in fact crack in you know that what we consider time and space right like when you know you look at high science projects and uh what they're doing is they're blasting massive amounts of 
energy and electricity. We're like, how can we create yeah. the most amount of electricity mm. in one moment and blow it up on itself? Well, nature does that on its own. Mm. And so it's like, if you think about entities and things passing through that in high amounts of electricity, you know, like I, they say, you've seen like um, folklore stories of ghosts coming in and out of sockets, power sockets, you know, being able mm. to control technology and things. So I think that's, part of you know this this thunderbird thing you know like um kind of lining up to like the cygnus constellation too maybe you know there's some maybe some sort of like orion symbolism there going on i don't know mm. Uh, mm. complete speculation at this point but there's there's so much to dig in uh yeah portals dude I don't, what, uh, let's, you know. I wonder if it is connected. It's got to be connected to the stars. Everything ends up connecting to the stars. Astrotheology and yeah, point. native. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Would love to dig into that. Well, and I got a guest suggestion for you, but first I want to ask what, uh, and tell the listeners, what what's the theme next month for Rising from the Ashes for August? August, we are doing Sumer. Right. And Egypt. Right on. Well, this yeah. guest suggestion might have to wait for appropriate theme month, but I just talked to a guy in Thailand. Maybe we could even have him on this show. I mean, it's called Esoteric America, so maybe not. But uh, he's in Thailand, and he wrote a book called Occult Thailand. What's that? It could be a special. <laughs> but what made me think of this was your point about ghosts. And in Thailand, they have all these rituals around um, appeasing ghosts and like making these structures mm -hmm. uh, and like sacrificing p people in the past, not in modern times, to, to these structures so that their ghosts would like, you know, inhabit the structure i mean geez does that remind you of anything uh over here with the mounds and whatnot but then yeah. also they would like imbue the spirit of a ghost or someone who'd passed away into like a charm that then they would give to somebody who needed it for whatever magical purpose so a lot of interesting stuff all over the world we got to do an episode on pennsylvania too with that amish magic oh, yeah. maybe tara oh, yeah, and i please. can can uh be the you know, I was thinking about this, and we'll say this now. I mean, everybody listening, if you found this show just on its own, I'm the host of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Roman is the co-host on Rising from the Ashes podcast. And uh, yeah, we we maybe ought to do episodes where one of us takes the role as guest and fills in uh, our other better halves, our other co-hosts, Chad included, best of health to chad if you're listening brother hope you feel better soon but yeah maybe that'll be the next step because we want chad to present what he knows about detroit before we let some you know scrub come in and tell us about detroit <laughs> you know <laughs> facts yeah absolutely no i mean uh i love i love chad's presentation and uh yeah his his uh gateway connection in this episode was pretty sweet mm. the totem pole gateway arch somewhere there i mean well, and it's almost like dibs come up it's know? almost like dibs too because like we all inevitably will probably talk about multiple 
have multiple episodes about interesting places like interesting places will probably come up more than once in like seattle we might do an episode two on that same city but i think dibs should be respected we should let chad open up detroit we'll do an episode on detroit with chad and maybe michigan so that way when we have more people on to talk about that they're not like you know biting on chad's swag he might not agree he might be humbler than that but i'd like to take a whack at new haven before we have someone else on here to do new haven and connecticut tara and i want to investigate milford and we just went down to pennsylvania and and lancaster county so yeah our minds are all over this field of of understanding the geography the landscape energy and homie romi you're like the western frontier master from hawaii to california all the way from yep. baja to vancouver dude you know it all up there don't you forget it don't you forget <laughs> it that is right no one gets more west coast than me dude like right on the fuck up well and yes. it's a perfect blend of hosts too because we have like us on the east coast you on the west coast and chad in the middle you know chad's yep. more set closer to us but still he's kind of like east midwest and then you have all of our beautiful uh polyamorous gods shining <laughs> down upon us to be the uh the host of us all the real puppet string polars of the cosmic code <laughs> wow so i don't want to pick favorites but i can say that the past four people that we've had on this show as guests are my favorites this has been so awesome so far, and I'm excited <laughs> about whoever we have on next. I know we're going to be going to Charleston, South Carolina soon. We get uh, Kent Woods on the show. He's a patron of mine, and he's been on my show before as a guest with some unrelated research. So, yeah, and then TR also wants to uh, maybe come back for a round two uh, about Indiana maybe not anderson but the greater indiana area and the mounds and whatnot so yeah man i'm excited to see where this show goes what about you brother did i ask you that already Stoked, man i'm, I'm <laughs> in my chariot you did you did but i'm, I'm in my chariot man my it just face, goes to show how stoned we both are <laughs> i don't smoke weed i don't know oh my god yeah now you're straight up lying on the podcast all right homie hold on i think we're gonna wrap it here thank you so much folks for listening i have something to show you so don't go anywhere roman but this has been another exploration of our exoteric america thank you for joining us and enjoy exploring your own backyard wherever that is Yeah.